0: Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark message podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Good morning. Fully expected for uh, daylight savings time. Good morning. That was good, though. You did better than I thought. We lost an hour, and yet you guys are here. You guys did good. Pat on the back. Good job. Thank you for joining us in person. Thanks for joining us online. My name's Sean. Um, I'm a guy here on staff and I get the privilege to open up the word and uh, share with you guys. We're going to continue in our study through Matthew. Um, so as you're turning there, turn to Matthew chapter 23 and uh, let, me, let me introduce something to you because we are in a different series in our study through book of Matthew. We are going to be in our series and they're going to throw this up on the screen, the final thoughts, the final thoughts, the last teaching from Jesus. Now there have been five teaching blocks that Jesus has had throughout the book of Matthew. It started with the Sermon on the Mount and he taught how to live in God's kingdom. Uh, we, We see the second one is when he got all of his apostles together and he starts sending them out. So the kingdom sent series that we had and then Jesus goes in and he, he starts sharing these stories and then he gives commentaries of each story and, and we walk through the parables of Jesus. And then we finished with the unexpected, right? The unexpected kingdom living where it's, you, you have honor by serving. You have revenge versus forgive. You have gaining wealth by giving wealth away, the unexpected teaching. And now we're here at the final thoughts. This is the last teaching from Jesus to the crowds that's recorded for us. And if you don't go ahead and already start reading ahead in chapter 23, if you're thinking about the very last teaching that Jesus is going to say to the crowds, you might be thinking that this last message is going to be one of grace. This last message is going to be one of love and mercy, one of a maybe an invitation to the salvation that he alone brings. But if you did read ahead, you know that it's none of those things, and it's actually a message of condemnation. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2, verse 4, that it is the goodness of God that leads, that leads men to repentance. In other words, God's love and grace are a greater motivator to salvation than hellfire and brimstone. But Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, that some will be saved by fire. That some will be saved by fire. And that is those who will not respond to God's grace and his goodness, those people do need to hear a strong message. A strong message of judgment or condemnation. And I believe that is why after spending three years of his ministry. Because we're, we're rolling into the last week as well of his life. We're getting closer to that last week part. So for three years of his ministry, Jesus preached grace and goodness of his father to the crowds. And now, here we are, rolling into the last week, and Jesus gave this final word of judgment to a group of people. So if you're there, let's go ahead and start reading. Verse uh, 1 in chapter 23 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplace being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth. For you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors. For you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much of a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. God, thank you for your word. God, I pray that you illuminate this text, that you lay it on our hearts, God, that you bring challenge, conviction, encouragement through your text that that we continue to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus, and we walk out of this room different than we walked into it. God, we love you and trust you, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So what we have here is Jesus' last teaching to the crowds, and I like to see it as in two parts, okay, two parts. The first part being Jesus looking at his disciples and the crowds and teaching them about what the Pharisees have done wrong. And then you start getting into verse 13, when it says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. So then, after Jesus teaches his people, the crowd, his disciples, what the Pharisees have had wrong, he then looks right at the scribes and Pharisees and starts calling out woes. Um, this is not a like good term. You don't ever want a woe called out to you. But we need to remember that in this, though it is a message of condemnation, this is not Jesus being irate with people. This, this is a tone of condemnation and even sorrowful sorrow, like that, that he has to say this because he, he sees what's happening to the people and he sees what's happening to the, the people that it's affecting. Like this, this could be kind of related back to a prophet in the Old Testament when he had to call down a condemnation on the city. Like, He wasn't irate. He didn't lose his temper. It was condemnation, which brings its own tone and even a little bit of sorrow behind it. So let's look at the very first thing. The very first thing that Jesus starts to explain to the crowds that the um, Pharisees kind of messed up on. We see in verse 2, it says the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses seat. Okay, this was a position in the synagogue. Okay, Um, a lot of archaeologists are digging up temples or finding temples. It's a, a giant seat, really, at the front of the synagogue where they're guessing they put all the scrolls. Like the, 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 the word, the law, would be sat on it. What they're saying is that, that they have sat on his seat, that they've kind of taken this authority that was never really given to them, but they're there. So it wasn't an ordained authority, but it's a permitted one. Um, so they're sitting there. In verse 3 it says, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. It's important to stop, focus, and realize that at no point is Jesus telling the people that the law that the Pharisees and scribes are teaching is not important. Jesus is saying, absolutely, what they teach you, what they say, that is important. But do not do what they do. He's telling them, he's telling the people to obey what they taught From the law, but not the man made rules or traditions that the Pharisees would then proclaim as their interpretation of the law. Jesus is saying, Hey, this is true. Absolutely. When this is read out loud, you do. But when they put this down and they grab their other book called a Talmud, which is 63 books of how they interpret the law of God, 63 additional books on how they interpret the law of God, and they start putting all these other man-made rituals and traditions on you, he's like, go ahead and stop. <laughs> that's going to be of no benefit to you. Don't obey that. You see, the righteousness that they had mistaken, this, this righteousness, they, they messed up. Because the righteousness of God, that's the standard. And his standard is laid out in his word for us and in his law for us. So what was taught from them they were to obey, the problem is this. The problem is this, that the Pharisees thought that righteousness meant an outward do and don't of the law. And they ignored the inward condition of their own heart. Which puts you in a weird kind of conflict. (laughs) You have people that, that are saying, no, this is what you do. And not how, not how it really actually feels or, or, or what my heart is actually saying. It's like, no, just do the checklist. Get the checklist done. And they were, they were fervent on this. And they were pushing this onto the people. Ultimately, Jesus is telling the crowds that the Pharisees have, have a wrong concept of what righteousness means. Jesus is saying, here is your righteousness laid out for you. We see in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scriptures breathed out by God profitable for teaching, reproof for correction, and training in righteousness. We know that to be true, but Jesus is telling the people who've been oppressed by these, this group of religious elite, pushing their own man-made rituals and traditions down upon them. He's saying, trust this, don't trust them. And it's kind of harsh, right? It says, so practice, <clears throat> verse 3, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but do not but not what they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Let that never be said of us today. He keeps going on in verse 4. It says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Another thing that the Pharisees would do, and we kind of hit on it already, they would heap these heavy religious burdens on people around them. Remember their book, their 63 books called the Talmud, of their interpretation of the law. It would be even how much weight you could lift on the Sabbath day, like it is crazy. <laughs> burdens that because of the scribes and Pharisees' life and lifestyle and their resources, they were able to do. You know, burdens that because of the way that they've shaped their life, they could do, and they had the resources to do it, and it really had no effect on their life, the scribe and Pharisee's life. Now, as I was reading this and kind of studying through this, I was like, what, what's the connection here? Like, what's a good relationship that we can kind of compare this to, and this might fail <laughs> as a good illustration for you, but I'm not a mechanic by any means. I know a little bit. I can do a little bit of things. But I've taken my car to plenty of mechanics. I have relatives that are really good mechanics. I've taken them there. And I've always heard this complaint by them, the engineers. right? A mechanic's going to complain about an engineer because the engineer is sitting somewhere else at the at the car whatever, <laughs> I can't think of the word, headquarters, and designing all these cars, and they're like, yeah, just throw an oil filter in there, it's no big deal. And then the car makes it to the mechanic, and the mechanic's like, I have to take off all four tires, turn my head to the right, and stick out my tongue just enough to get this oil filter off. Like, they're, The engineers, it has no effect on them at all, but they're putting these heavy burdens on the mechanics. That's the best I got for you guys. That's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. All right, I heard of that works. So this is what they're doing. They are heaping burdens on people that it really has no effect on their life. They're fine. They have the resources. They have the lifestyle. They can do the things that they're telling the people to do. Ultimately, the Pharisees and the scribes were okay with saying, as they walked around and saw people falling underneath the weight of the burden, they're saying, you know it's not lawful for you to do that. They're fine watching people be crippled by the weight that they've put on them and just going up and saying, yeah, you need to do a little bit better. That's not lawful for you to do. You know that, right? They're really good at the condemnation part, but they're horrible at saying, you know that this really isn't required? This is just something we've, we've kind of come up with <laughs> It's not required. Sorry that it crushed you. They're horrible at saying that. And honestly, this is in complete contrast to what Jesus taught when he said, my burden's light and my yoke is easy. Jesus had to make that statement because of what was happening in this day and age. The Pharisees and the scribes were just heaving these burdens on people. And Jesus came came to them with truth saying, my burden's light. My yoke is easy. It's clearly defined. This is what it is. Let me help you. So that's the second thing. Their ministry. They kind of had their ministry upside down. They had a wrong concept of what ministry looks like. And then we get to verse 5. It says They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. And then Jesus goes on and says, you're not supposed to be called rabbi. You're not supposed to be called father. You're not supposed to be called an instructor. And then 11, it says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think the third thing that Jesus goes and tells the crowds that the Pharisees have wrong is that it's about their greatness, that it's all about the Pharisees' greatness. So this word phylactery. Probably saying that wrong. Sorry. Um, it was this thing that, I mean, it was told in the Old Testament to, to put it on your foreheads and on your forearms, the word of God. And they, they took a literal interpretation of this. They built little leather boxes and they, and they put them on their foreheads and on their forearms and on their doorposts. And, I mean, they went for it. They did it. This was a pure intention. But the issue happens whenever this phylactery just, it doesn't cut it anymore because people can't see it from too far away. So now we make it this big. And now we make it this big. And now it's just this giant box on your head that people can see from half a mile away. And the same thing here. You guys ever have like ankle weights? I just think of that all day long, right on your wrist, just walking around. You're carrying these boxes around that has four scriptures on each one of them. So what they did. Their phylacteries were broad. They started getting too big. Fringes, another thing that God said in his law was to put on the, on, um, on the, uh, the cloak, right? The blue fringe, we see that. We see that on the flag. We see that all over the place, this, this blue color for Israel. So the issue was this fringe wasn't cutting it anymore. So now we're here, and then we're like Elvis style, and now we're like, Cowboy at the rodeo, fancy ones, and then like it's just dragging behind you like you're at a wedding, right? Like that's your train at this point. They took everything that God had to set them apart from the people so the people would ask questions about who's your God, what's your God about, what's this all about, and that they could be the mouthpiece of God to the nations around them. They took everything that was good and they made it all about themselves. There's a quote from a commentator that just hurt whenever I read it, so I want to read it to you guys. It says, as these hypocrites were destitute of all the life and power of religion within, they endeavored to supply its place with phylacteries and fringes without. They didn't have the power. They didn't have the love. They didn't have this connection that we do to Christ and to the Father and our reconciliation. They didn't have any of that. So the best that they could do was make Bigger phylacteries (laughs) and longer fringe. Because it's no longer about us relationship with God. It's about me. So they they took, they had the wrong concept of where the greatness was supposed to be. And they made it all about themselves. Verse 13. Verse 13 is going to start um, the woe section. The second part. So here Jesus is telling the crowds everything that the Pharisees and scribes are doing wrong. And I, I don't know if this is like a big surprise for you guys. Like the crowd wasn't really caught off guard. <laughs> the crowd's probably like, a, amen, get it Jesus, go, get him. You know, he, they understood what was happening to them, but it was great to have the authority. Christ, the Messiah, tell them that they were right. So they all get this. They're not like, oh, no, don't, don't go after the Pharisees. They're probably like, they're right there. Just turn around and go get them. And then sure enough, that's what he does. So here you probably have the scribes and Pharisees kind of on the outside of the crowd, just kind of lingering on the back, maybe trying to start a little tussle. Who knows? That's not in Scripture. That's just me guessing. That's what I would do if I was one of them. I'd be like, no, no, go get them. Like, get mad. Um, and then he kind of t- turns his thought to from the people to the scribes and Pharisees themselves, verse thirteen, it says, "But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!" There's that word. There's that word that nobody in the church scene really likes to hear, and especially if it's directed towards you, <laughs> you don't like that word, hypocrite. But well, let's look at it really quick. It's a word that was actually with the theater, right? It was. It was a. It was a word for the actors in the theater. Um, Greece had. Theater, they had a lot of stuff. Um, and the actors would wear these giant masks. So remember like the big phylacteries and the big long fringes? People just like to let people know what was up, I guess. But the, if, if their character was a sad character, they'd have a giant sad mask on. So you could tell from all the way around, uh, all the way at the back of the amphitheater. So here they were just actors that had kind of a facade that didn't match the inner reality. And that's the word that we have here for hypocrite. One who wears a mask. One that says one thing but does another. Hypocrite. So Jesus is going to now focus on them. For the remainder of the passage that we have, he has three things that he's going to call them out on. Because maybe they're sitting in the back and they're like, no, I don't do that. Like, my fringe isn't the longest, it's up there, but it's not the longest. So like he's direct, he's like, okay, here we go. Condemnation, a tone of sorrow, not just irate, I'd, I'd lose it at this point. Three years, three years <laughs> he's been teaching this. Their hardened hearts just show up in full effect. So he goes, and in verse 13 he says, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. By teaching the man-made traditions instead of God's truth, um, the Pharisees and scribes ultimately took away the key of knowledge. And they closed the door to salvation. The scribes and Pharisees, in their pride, couldn't get past this door. And in their pride and heaving all these burdens and changing the priorities and, and, and changing the focus of what this relationship is with God to This is what I have to do as a checklist, and that's it. And if I do more good than bad, doors open, I'm in. Because of that, they themselves are kept out, and the people cannot even get in. This word, um, talking about kingdom of heaven is shut in people's faces, for neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. This, This allow, that word, is like the people are trying, like they're knocking on the door. They're trying to pull open the door, but it's locked because they've missed the entire boat. They've changed everything about what it was supposed to be to what they thought it should be, and people no longer get to go in. It's really interesting. If you guys remember, the very first teaching that I talked about was the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. So go back, go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. So remember, the Pharisees are pride, and in their pride, they have shut the door. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is ultimately tying the very first teaching that he did in with the very last teaching that he did. And showing the Pharisees and scribes on how they should have a kingdom life. Poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. Don't be prideful. Don't let your pride change the trajectory. Don't let your pride change it to be about you. Don't let your pride change it to be about what tradition you want to come up with now. The poor in spirit. Keep going. Verse 15. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Second time that we hear this word, hypocrite. You do one thing and you, you say one thing and you do another. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. The second woe is that the Pharisees were leading their converts on the wrong path. Not only were they teaching the wrong thing, they were leading the groups and the, and the crowds astray. When they made a convert, they put them on the wrong path anyways. This proselyte is just, it's a convert. Um, they, would, they would go at any cost to win somebody, which is awesome. They're not condemned because of their lack of zeal of evangelism. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, yeah, hey, that's great. You had zeal, Uh, I think uh, Paul in Romans, right? They had zeal, but not according to knowledge. They They had the excitement, they had the passion, they had everything, and they went and they did it. They did it wrong. Because instead of winning them to God, to Christ, they won them to their form of religion. And they couldn't introduce them to the living God and in so doing they made them twice as worse off as they are themselves because a convert usually shows more zeal than the leader does himself so think of generations of doing this by the time jesus is talking to them here in his last teaching there's a lot of converts that have happened and they are very they have a lot of zeal ultimately The Pharisees and scribes were leading people from darkness to darkness. And they never were able to share light with them. Verse 16. says, woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Blind guides. That's a new one. Blind. They were absolutely blind to the light and goodness and grace of God. And I'm sure people in the crowd are like, yep, <laughs> yep, yeah, this has got to be true. This isn't the first time Jesus has called them blind guides. This is something he said before in the Gospel of Matthew to them, but he's just reiterating the point. He's like, you have completely missed it. You can't even, you can't even see it. The thing that he's going to uh, condemn them on here is that they were just splitting hairs about oaths. Like they were trying to evade things, right? Like they didn't want any responsibility Um, So if I entered into an agreement with Jen and I said, yeah, Jen, I promise that I'll watch your dog on the altar. I I promise on on the altar I'll watch your dog. And then Jen comes back from a couple weeks and dog's no longer there because I didn't watch the altar. And she comes to me and she's like, whoa, my dog died. Hey, it wasn't bound because I said it was the altar, not the gift on the altar. Like it's the little cross your fingers behind your back little kid game. That's what they were playing. Like they're splitting hairs about oaths. And ultimately the people, the Pharisees and scribes were leaving God out of their priorities. These were the same guys that would claim Corban. Do you guys remember that, Corban? Corban was anything that was dedicated to God couldn't be used for other people. So if they really liked something, they'd be like, oh, that's Corban. <laughs> like Kim needs this, and I have it. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Kim, that's Corbin. Can't have it. <laughs> These men were not seeking for the righteousness of God. They were just greedy for gain. They were just greedy for gain. You know what? I just realized. Go back to Matthew 5. I skipped right over it, guys. Call me out on it. Matthew 5. Go back whenever they are talking about leading their converts down the wrong path. Verse 5, uh, Chapter 5, verse 4, says, oh, 5... Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if they would have came in humility, they would have came in, in um, yeah humil- hum- humility to the people, their converts would have been numerous. They, Israel should have been the mouthpiece of God to the nations. They went about it the wrong way. And now here at the false oaths, right? So go down in verse 6. It said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst... For righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Because they were willing to split hairs about o's and try to get out of certain things because, you know, of a little, my fingers were crossed behind my back. These men were not seeking for the righteousness of God. They're greedy for gain. They worked out a religious system that permitted them to rob God and others but yet maintain their reputation. So those are the three woes to the scribes and Pharisees, that, that they shut the kingdom of heaven for themselves and for other people, that they led converts on the wrong path, made them dedicated converts to the wrong cause, and that they just <laughs> they had false oaths. God's like, listen, if you're going to pray or, or swear on the altar, you're swearing on everything in there. He's like, there's no way out. There's no evasion from this. Your word's your word. Your yes is a yes and your no is a no. And he's calling them out on it um, and, and their whole religious system. Now, I'm not going to lie to you guys. This has been a tough one. <laughs> this was not one of those that I was excited to jump into the study every day. <laughs> because this is one of those passages that just kind of just turn a mirror and then you're looking at it as you're reading it and you're like, Here we go. So in conclusion, I just want to cover this for us. This is going to be a while. This is a long conclusion. You guys know that. I talk a lot. Sorry. What does this mean for us today? What does, looking at this passage, seeing the last teaching of Jesus, seeing how he corrected the Pharisees in front of the crowd, and then gave them condemnation on three things. There's still four more to go. We'll pick that up next week. On three things, what does this mean? mean for us today? Like, how can we apply this to our lives? Now, I don't want to... I'm going to be looking out here, but don't think I'm staring at any one of you. (laughs) This is a conversation that I've just had with myself over the last week or two. So here we go. Jesus told the crowd the problems with the Pharisees. I had a question. Why would he be talking to the crowd instead of just the Pharisees? Like, why wouldn't he just go and talk to the Pharisees? In a sense... I think Jesus was finished talking to the Pharisees. Multiple times, Jesus had addressed them, but their hardened hearts were evident. But what stuck out to me was who would have been in that crowd that Jesus was talking to. There's absolutely people who needed to break free from the legalistic tyranny that the Pharisees and scribes set up. Absolutely. But this crowd would also have another group of people in it, and it's Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples, then and then, right then and, and then, even into the future, they're possibly future followers, followers of Him, and disciples of His. So, why did He talk to the crowd instead of the Pharisees? I think it was this: one, to let the people know what was true and the priorities, and possibly one last appeal to the scribes and Pharisees, one last chance to talk to them but I also think it was because he was warning his followers about what could happen to them in the future with similar behavior. And that warning, church, is for us today as well. Each one of us who are in Christ are a representative of him. And titles and reverence towards us when we step out and step into ministry which all of you are in ministry, all of us are in ministry, when we step out into ministry, those titles and reverence can easily infiltrate our hearts and change the object or purpose of why we are on that mission in the first place. This can honestly happen with the purest of intentions. Now I know I just spent the last, I don't know, 30 minutes bashing the Pharisees. (laughs) And honestly, the Pharisees can get a bad rap because they weren't the best. Yes, they were dedicated legalists. But they were also men who were seriously devoted to their religion. No one would become a Pharisee in the first place and have that demand put on their life unless they were not truly devoted in the first place. A lot of these guys might have entered into that role with the purest of intentions. I think the, uh, the Jewish people are quoted that you could either have a legalistic Pharisee or one that is after the heart of God. Because of the two main characteristics that it takes to be that person. I think the Jews also taught that there were seven different types of Pharisees. I didn't remember all of them, but I remembered some of the funny ones. There's a blue and black Pharisee, which was so holy that if he saw a woman in public, he would turn away. And they called him blue and black because he would always run into things because he's not looking. Um, that was kind of funny. I laughed on that one. They called the, uh, the hunchback, um, the hunchback Pharisee, who in his humility wanted to let people know how humble he was. Uh, he would walk really low and barely pick up his feet. So there's the hunchback one. Um, there's one oh the wait and see the wait and see one where they would just wait and see what other good works they can do <laughs> there was the shoulder Pharisee that, that put all of his good works on his shoulder and let everyone see it and then finally there's seven of them six of them are not good ones and then finally there's the last one that they, and it was last on the list God fearing Pharisee that did everything because of his love that he had for his creator Six of them were bad, but one of them were good. And the Pharisees can get a bad rap, but we must be careful to always look at ourselves through the mirror of God's word because we can enter into ministry with the purest of intentions, but because of titles and reverence, it can start kind of clouding up the water. Looking back at the conversation Jesus had with the crowd, he discusses three things that the Pharisees had, wrong, had a wrong concept of, and we've already covered it. One is their righteousness. The other is a ministry. And the third, finally, is greatness. And the problem that they had, to sum it all up, is that they took it from his righteousness, his ministry, and his greatness to my righteousness, my ministry, my greatness. Church, here's some lessons that I've learned throughout these last couple weeks. It's about his righteousness and not ours. The Pharisee believed righteousness meant an outward conformity to the law and ignored the inward condition of the heart. Church, to preach one thing and practice another is only hypocrisy. It's not righteousness. And remember, I'm talking to myself. So if this is you, remember where you used to be. Remember where you used to be, how close you were to the Father. Repent from your sin of hypocrisy and self righteousness and return to Him. That's a lesson found in Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, repent, and return. Church, you cannot do this alone. Remember, your righteousness is not the standard, your righteousness is not enough. You need to go to Him. Trust in him, and out of response for his love for you, take off that mask. Stop being that actor. Take off that mask, and then you live for him. Second thing is that it's about his ministry and his gospel of grace, and not our thought on it. Church, he has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation not conformity. He's entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation and not conformity. What do I mean by that? Sean, you need to explain that a little bit more. Church, we need to stop heaping things on people that were never meant to be heaped onto. We need to stop adding things. The gospel and, the gospel but, the gospel and, the The Galatians is written because of that. (laughs) Like that is the reason Paul had to pin that down. Because people were adding to the gospel or or putting something on the front end before you could receive the gospel. We have the ministry of reconciliation, not conformity. Let me share a little bit about my life and ministry-wise. Before I came down here, I was doing college ministry. College ministry is still near and dear to my heart. It's still needed. Like... Keep praying for those people that are on campuses. It's it's tough. It's hard. Um, we had one student show up, and there um, they they struggle with alcohol. They struggle with alcohol pretty bad, um, and it was a constant thing. And uh, I remember eventually I started just getting really tired about it. It's kind of the same old thing. We get a little bit of victory, and then right back into it. A little bit of victory, right back into it. A little bit of it, right back into it. So then my message started changing. Like, you need to quit drinking. You need to stop drinking. You need to do this. You need to do that. And ultimately, I changed my strategy of just evangelizing and going and proclaiming the good news of Christ to trying my best to take that crimson stain of sin to the lightest pink I could before I could then show them to Jesus, or bring them to Jesus. And then he could make it white from there. Turn to the book of Ephesians. If you guys would, we're going to bounce all around it. There's going to be three spots we're going to look at. Um, But as this student was in ministry, and I I started seeing that I was setting up these checkpoints for him before I introduced anyone to Christ, Uh, we were actually going through the book of Ephesians. And one of the commentaries that I came across introduced this book like this. that He said that there's a certain flow that we read about in the book of Ephesians that is contrary to what the church does today. And I was like, whoa, got to read this. Let's jump into this a little bit more. So let's look at Ephesians 2, verse 6. Ephesians 2, verse 6. Let's do, well, I like this. You just want to read the whole thing? (laughs) Let's do six. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So step one is that first we sit with Christ in the heavenlies. And now turn to four, verse one. It's all going to make sense. Four, verse one, says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now six, one. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and your father. This is the first. Oh, I might have typed this one wrong. Nope. Hang on. 15. Man, I wrote that one down wrong, guys. I am so sorry. It's stand fast. Wherever stand fast is. There it is. Verse 10. Forgot the zero or 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Church, we think that if we stand fast and we hold our ground, then we can start walking in a manner worthy of the call that we've been, and then maybe one day we're gonna make it to the heavenlies. The commentator said this, he said, in grace-oriented theology, the order is to first sit with Christ in the heavenlies, then to walk with him responsively. And finally, to stand fast in him securely. We've got to stop flipping it. <laughs> We've got to stop putting burdens on people that were never meant to be put on them. Our mission, our, we talked about it this morning in Team Huddle. Our mission is that we go, therefore, and preach the gospel, baptizing people and teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. That's our mission. We're the paper boy. That's that's it. We don't write the paper. We don't edit the paper. I hand the paper out. That's it. We need to get back to that. We need to start introducing people to Christ first. And then I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he will straighten everything else out. Though the advice that we give them is good advice, good godly counsel that, yeah, get your addictions out, I don't have the power to break that for them. You don't have the power to break that for them and they don't have the power to break it for themselves or they already would have. Introduce Christ to them. Let him do it. And then finally, it's about his greatness and not ours. Church, as soon as we put a capital letter on the word servant, we are in trouble. Go back to Matthew uh, 23 verse 12 it says whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted guys this is a truth this is a promise whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted it's saying that if you choose to exalt yourself here make it about your greatness not his that's your reward and for eternity you will be humbled or if you decide to choose be humbled for the short amount of time that we're on this planet your eternity is that you will be exalted when you choose to exalt yourself here our usefulness to god will be finished For our light will no longer be shining before men to bring glory to God, but it will rather be shining to bring glory to ourselves. And thus, that's what we end with and that's the reward that we get here on earth. Church, it's about his righteousness, it's about his ministry, and it's about his greatness. I know that we can feel beat up after this kind of passage. <laughs> when you read the word hypocrite, you know you're in for it already. But the really cool thing is this. That because we're his, we can remember. We can repent. And we can return. And he's faithful. And he's good. And he's our hope. We're not stuck in this hypocrisy. We're not stuck in And having the wrong concepts. Go to him. Trust him. Love him. He's there. I promise you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that it brings. God, I pray that you spoke to our hearts today. You took me out of the equation. God, that you just, you help us. Whether it be if we're struggling with our own righteousness versus yours. Or our ministry versus yours. Or our greatness versus yours. God, we just ask that you move in those situations. God, that you have us remember, that you have us repent, that you have us return. God, I pray for strength, pray for opportunities even to go out and, and, and put into practice the things that you've taught us. To be a good representative, representative of you to the world around us. God, that we show them you and you alone and we watch you work. God, we love you, we trust you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said...